0: The Kingdom Roots podcast is brought to you today by Northern Seminary. A seminary education has a vital role to play in God's kingdom taking root. The mission of Northern Seminary is to equip the church to change the world. Northern offers a variety of different degree programs, including specialized programs such as Master of Arts in New Testament, directed by Dr. Scott McKnight. Northern also has an outstanding set of flagship degrees, including the Masters of Divinity and the Doctorate of Ministry. If you are interested in a seminary education and would like to learn more about how Northern equips the church to change the world, please visit our webpage at seminary.edu. Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today, for our episode, we're going to be talking about why does the church need to keep doing good theology. <music> to start our conversation, uh, here's a quote from Miroslav Volf that I think sets us up for this conversation well. He says, academic theology is in crisis today. Theological schools are closing, theological books are not being read, and the discipline itself has lost much of its reputation among academics working in other fields, among ministers and their flock, and among the general population. He goes on in his quote and he talks about how uh, there are many reasons for this crisis, but maybe the biggest reason of all is that theologians are trained out of doing theology in a certain way. And so, I I was wondering, Scott, if you know, do you agree with Wolf on this crisis? And you know, if so, what do you think that this crisis may be coming from?
1: Well, Chaz, I think you're right. I mean, I think I think Wolf is right at some very important levels uh, about the church today. I've been in a lot of contexts in the last fifteen years, where I hear Christian leaders diminish the significance of theology, yeah. talk theology down, make fun of academics. i've been, I've sat in in uh, congregations when the pastor, the preacher, the teacher has said some very derogatory things about professors, and in particular, seminary professors. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting there wanting to sink into my seat. Mm -hmm. Uh, So so let me say a couple things about it. I I don't think it's simply systematic theology that is the problem, because frequently systematic theology has a capacity to talk in our own modern categories. So it, it does strive at some level, even if it's highly intellectual. Uh, to, to be relevant in that sense mm-hmm. uh, but i see uh, i see three problems the first one is this uh, pastors who are theological types professors who are intellectual types uh, are to blame in part for a very serious diminishment of theology on the part of many people today Uh, When I go to academic meetings by evangelicals and they are obsessed with topics uh, year in and year out that don't matter to ordinary people in the pew, I'm not saying that all theology has to be populist, but when it doesn't matter to ordinary people in the pew, when they cannot make a connection Mm -hmm. between uh, the theology or the exegesis, or the Bible, and how people live today, then I have a problem. Uh, I will sidetrack this for just a second. For many years, people in the old perspective on Paul, the traditional view of Paul, um, criticized the new perspective because it never said anything about the Christian life. Yeah, I, I believe that this was inaccurate about the new perspective, but but I knew what they were saying because when you read the New Perspective Scholars, they're not grinding this down uh, to the level that people can consume it, and they're not putting it on a shelf where it becomes accessible. Mm-hmm. That is just an illustration of the problem I'm talking about. Uh, but there's another problem here, and that is uh, uh, I, I, see, I see a lot of people in the church, leaders in churches, pastors who are at some level quite successful, who don't value either serious Bible study, mm-hmm. nor do they value serious reading and theology. They've learned pragmatically what it takes to get a good band on the stage, yeah, to get butts in pews, and they're quite satisfied with that. And they look around and say, why should I read Moltmann? Mm-hmm. Why should I read Wolff?" Why should I learn Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic? Why should I interact with these things? Look, I'm making it happen.
0: Sure. Yeah, and I feel like those two are are, are really actually you know intertwined. For, for one, the the people writing, if it's not you know if it's not accessible to to helping them in their position, and then you know the pastors who are in the trenches doing the ministry, uh, are are like, well, well, great, I read that, but but what does that help me do with this you know this person in the hospital I'm going to visit or this yeah. sermon that I'm writing that that if if they're not you know, both accessible and and have the back and forth with each other. Then you know neither is really helping each other.
1: You know, when I was a, a professor at Trinity many many years ago, I I routinely had students who who were what I would call pastor types. Uh huh. Um, I'm in Florida, and just outside my window is a pileated woodpecker, and I'm very very excited to see it <laughs> this year. Um, but I would run into pastor types and they gravitated, not to the New Testament professors or the Old Testament professors or the theologians, they gravitated to the men and women, Most they were mostly men, in fact, they were all men, sorry to make that point, uh, in the pastoral theology department because they intuitively understood the very issues that were important in churches. Uh, Now that I'm at Northern Seminary, I don't find this disconnect. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, my colleague David Fitch is a pastor. Uh, I'm a deacon uh, in the Anglican Church, and that means that I have some pastoral responsibilities, uh, Mm -hmm. though thankfully I'm not high on the list of those. But I find at Northern Seminary um, a much deeper concern with pastoral Mm -hmm. ministry, and I don't find students disconnected from church work in our classes. But I do believe that it is traditional uh, for for many theologians mm-hmm. and many biblical people to talk pure exegesis, to talk pure history, and to leave uh, leave the church situation out, leave the truth questions out, and especially to leave the pastoral questions out. And that is very, very sad. And so I blame I blame my types for some of this problem, but at the same time, I don't want to let off the pressure on pastors and leaders and people Absolutely. in church uh, on this topic, because they too need to struggle with these. And in some ways, I think pastors who read serious books
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, can point the way for theological types, for seminary professor types. Uh, to see how this material makes
0: a difference in local churches. Absolutely. So, was it was there a third one? I know you gave that the intellectuals need need to make it accessible. The pastors need to deepen their well and their theological study. Was there a third one as well? well
1: the, yeah, the lay people is a part of it. But I I would I would want to add this. What I was thinking of is in the history of American evangelicalism, there has been um, an irresistible urge toward populist ideas, toward popular ideas, toward anti-intellectualism. And so there is almost, uh, if you are, I remember one time a pastor saying, uh, and I was in the audience, that the dumbest farmer grows the best potatoes. He used that as an illustration of Christian thinkers and pastors who don't know their stuff Mm -hmm. as that is that in other words He was making the analogy that the dumbest pastors those least educated theologically and exegetically who can't argue the Greek text at all uh, Or the Hebrew text They're the ones who are the best pastors and I cringed because They are also the ones most easily led astray. Mm -hmm. And they are the ones who I think are leading the charge in American Christianity of why so many young Christians are gravitating toward theological movements Mm -hmm. that are more serious about theology and robust. Um, And I'm talking here about the Gospel Coalition. Uh, They have offered to people who are sick and tired of thin theology in big churches, and they want to hear sermons that have some theological depth and some exegetical backbone. And I don't blame them. I think that there is every reason to blame many leaders and pastors and teachers and churches themselves for a lack of interest in theological
0: studies. So, yes. Yeah. I think
1: self is right. There is a crisis.
0: Yeah. And so, you know, I wonder, I feel like this is something that really just needs clarified um, more than anything. Um, Because if I were on that point arguing, well, we just need to, you know, do things simplistically. And it's, you know, the least of, of us who are least skilled, least theologically astute to be able to do God's best work. Um, if I were arguing for their side, I think they would go to Paul's passage about, you know, God uses the, you know, the, the thing, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Um, but I would wonder, you know, what, what would you have to say to that? What do we need to understand about what Paul's really talking about in that passage that doesn't mean it just takes us off the hook for studying theology on a deep level?
1: Yes, that is a really good example. Of uh, that illustrates the whole problem. Number one, it's bad exegesis of what Paul yeah. means by foolishness, which is connected to the cross. Secondly, it is it completely flies in the face of the guy who thinks the letter to the Romans is really vital for Christian living in the church at Rome. I mean, this is a guy who is pro is profoundly theological. Mm. This is a person whose theology is steeped in scripture, the narrative, and exegesis, and he draws out fine points. So, what Paul means by the foolish things of the world confounding the wise, the wise are unbelievers who scoff at the possibility of someone dying on a cross being the very wisdom of God, and the foolishness, the foolish, The fools are those who see in the cross of Christ the utter wisdom of God and therefore they deconstruct the wisdom of the world with a wisdom of God that is transformative in life. And Paul is the one, uh, as an example, he uses himself, Mm -hmm. uh, following in this path of the Christ crucified. So to me, to use that verse is to illustrate that it's a person who's not struggling clearly with Scripture itself. Sure, Paul is against philosophy, Philosophia is the word he uses, but he's again critiquing uh, worldly wisdom of people who don't submit to God, who don't follow the ways of God, who aren't believers, and, and he critiques those people with philosophy, while at the same time he uses profound theological arguments And if you listen to some people who do New Testament studies today, he's deeply aware of how Greek and Roman rhetoric works, and he uses rhetorical skills very well. So Paul is not an illustration of someone who doesn't believe in the importance of theology. In fact,
0: he challenges anyone who doesn't see the importance of theology. Yeah, and I feel like it's, it's, necessary to have good theology to be able to unpack those things that he says so we understand not only what he was saying, but the implications of what he's saying uh, for for our world and for our churches today.
1: You know, theology is hard work, Chaz. Uh, It requires a person to read deeply, carefully for a long time, to listen to alternative voices, I mean, just just study the history of theology. Let's say you read some of Athanasius or some of the Cappadocians, and you read some Augustine, and you're not educated if you don't read some Aquinas and some Anselm, and then you have to read some Luther and Calvin and Wesley and some Anabaptists who are usually ignored. Uh, You know, you have to read in these people, and it takes time, and we are in a hurry, and we want answers to questions, but if we are disciplined in our reading pattern by the time we're in our 40s and 50s we've become wise because we've learned we've been in contact with the great thinkers in the history of the church whom God has used to bring fresh light to the significance of the gospel and how it relates to culture so yeah it takes a lot of work and it, it I would urge people to develop a long-term pastoral reading plan so that they read the great thinkers in the history of the church, junk some of the most popular things that are coming out every year in cheap paperback editions that people are going to read for one year and never read again, find some of the great authors, some of the great thinkers in the history of the church, and let them influence our minds. You, You can't know everything at 35. But at 45, you begin to develop wisdom, and in your 50s and 60s, you can hand on to a generation and show to the next generation the significance of being soaked in the great
0: theology of the history of the church. Well, I've got some time to go then. I'm only 26, and so I've got, man, I've got 10 more. I've got a decade before I'm even going to start <laughs> getting any wisdom. Yeah, um, you're, you're in seminary, and that, this is a time—
1: Uh, when you have the opportunity to read some great thinkers. Mm -hmm. And I'm disappointed sometimes when I see the um, syllabi of of people who go to seminary, and I see that they're all reading just, let's see, conservative evangelical thinkers and pretending that they're the best thinkers on these topics in the history of the church. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got to read, you've got to spend your time with Augustine. And you got to spend your time with Aquinas and Calvin. Uh, Luther's harder to read because he writes so uh, polemically in sermons, but Luther has got to be read. And this is the year of you know this uh, next year is going to be the uh, what is the 500th anniversary of Luther's nailing the um, the uh, theses to the door. So we want to know about these people, and we need to uh, let their ideas shape how we think and to do that
0: we, we have to commit ourselves to reading some of the great theologians. So you've mentioned a few people I mean what would you say is would be some practical places to start if somebody were listening to our podcast and were, you know were, we're challenged and felt, oh man, I, I really need to do this Is, is there a good you know, just reading plan out there or is it developing your own? Is there a, you know a go-to resource that, that would help people just have a, having a starting point?
1: You know, uh, let me give you a couple examples. Uh, my friend Jerry McDermott wrote a book called *The Great Theologians of the Church*. There you go. He gives a he gives a chapter to about a dozen, maybe it's 10, ten theologians, and there's there's a there's a list of the great ones. He mentions the great books. Uh, that's a great place to start. He will be a portal or a window or the front porch for anyone who wants to read the theologians, the great theologians, or you could read a survey of of that story of Christian theology by someone like Roger Olson, who discusses all the major thinkers. And then then that challenges you to get those people's books, you know, one at a time. I mean, it doesn't do any good to go buy 50 books if you're only gonna read one of them. Uh, One at a time, uh, say work yourself through in 10 years, one theologian a year. And then the next 10 years, 10 more theologians. And think of of where you would be, uh, Chaz, if you're at 46, if you have read 20 of the church's greatest theologians and at least one of their best books. I I know where you'd be. Mm -hmm. You'd be a person that other young pastors would say, Chaz, help me with this. How did Augustine think about this? How did Athanasius think about it? you would be a resource of wisdom and you know I'm praying for more and more young theologians to come out of seminaries with that kind of commitment to re- to to carve out of their reading time opportunities to read the great theologians
0: yeah and I think it's important to see it not only as a gift to yourself to, to deepen your own thinking and theology but it's ultimately a gift to the church as well I mean this is for the sake of being able to to better the health of your congregations of just the, the community of faith that you are are serving and, and a part of uh,
1: I have I have a couple pastor uh, friends who are in groups. And they read now. My D Men class right now. I think they're becoming a group. They they do a lot of communication mm-hmm. with one another. But I have a friend in Nashville named Josh Graves, uh, who is in a reading group, preaching group, discussion group with some of his buddies at that same age, like Jonathan Stormont and. Uh, 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 Josh uh, Ross, and and they they get together, but they read common books together. Mm -hmm. I don't know what all the books that they're doing, but why not uh, for someone like you, why not someone who's in seminary to begin to form a cohort of readers that over a year you can discuss, over the years you can discuss with one another um, some of these great books that you've committed to reading
0: with one another? Yeah, I think that's so important. Accountability is is necessary to to make that happen. I want to shift gears just a little bit here and um, point out, you know, obviously the New Testament is the foundation of Christian theology. But I think it also should be the guide for how we do theology. What could you tell us? What is important about how the New Testament authors did theology so that can kind of be you know, a guide for how you know, we approach and do theology in the 21st century today?
1: Okay, we'll start with Jesus. Let, let's... That's a good place to start. <laughs> Jesus begins his public ministry saying this, the kingdom of God has drawn near, repent, and or the time has been fulfilled the kingdom of God is drawn near. Repent and believe in the gospel. There's hardly a word used there other than the little words like "end" that is not uh, floating on the ocean streams of the Old Testament. Kingdom, believe, repent, gospel, fulfilled, time. Those are big words. And Jesus did theology by standing on the shoulders of Moses and David and Solomon and Isaiah, especially, I think, uh, and the prophets. And he brings into a fresh expression what God has given him to teach and reveal to Israel. So we find there theology done by knowing the scripture, knowing Israel's story, and knowing how that story speaks to a modern world. So we move to, let's just say, uh, Paul. And we we can begin with his earliest letter, I think, is Galatians. And notice that he knows how to use Old Testament scripture to talk to a very particular situation. Namely, there are Gentiles who are converting to Christianity to belief in Jesus as Messiah and Lord of all, and we have Judaizing Christians who think for them to be fully accepted by God, they've got to give up their status as God-fearers and become fully converted by going through circumcision. Mm -hmm. Paul is able to bring the story of Abraham about the Gentiles to bear on that situation to show them that salvation, justification for Abraham was on the basis of faith, not on the basis of of circumcision, he was circumcised after he believed, after he was justified, so therefore circumcision is not necessary for full inclusion. Notice how he operates, and I think of Peter, um, and I, I was reading 1 Peter the other day, and in chapter two, amazing capacity to show the relationship of the new Christian movement to Israel's story by just swiping one expression after another that was used for Israel, that is now to be used for Israel expanded into the church to include Gentiles. Well, every writer in the New Testament operates this way. Richard Hayes has a little book, Reading Scripture Backwards, and he's got a brand new book that has just come out on the use of the echoes of the Old Testament in the Gospels, demonstrating that each of the evangelists are deeply uh, entrenched, deeply soaked in Scripture and the story of Scripture. And this is how we learn to do theology in the church. We watch Jesus, we watch the early apostles who were theologians on how they brought Scripture to bear on given and particular situations, which, you know, that's, that's what the uh, that's what our new master's degree at Northern yeah. is, is trying to show how Scripture and theology are connected to mission in the world today. So this is, to me, this is one of the most important things about theology. And great theologians did this. They were soaked in Scripture. They didn't just read one another. Now, a lot of theologians today, frankly, read one another, and they assume that if Karl Barth said it, it's true. And so, Bart becomes their canon and their foundation, and they move then from Bart on. Uh, but the great theologians, Bart himself, was deeply soaked in Scripture. You read Bart, and he's always talking Bible. Bart taught exegesis of Philippians for many years. So, I, I believe that we learn from the New Testament writers how to do theology, and what they taught us was listen to the story of Scripture. And let it sing into your world today.
0: Um, and that's yeah, that's what theology is, and that's what theology is at its best. And if you know we're to continue to you know, let the kingdom take root, like what we, we've what's been our consistent theme in this podcast, then we have to be able to do theology well. Um, anything else on theology and the church before we go? You know, uh, Wolff
1: is right that there is a crisis. And I feel this. I feel this because I find many young adults who really are serious about the Christian life, who have deep questions about the significance of theology, the significance of Bible, and they have almost disconnected Christianity from theology and from Bible, and for them it is simply a matter of doing good in the world. This deeply concerns me. Mm -hmm. And I call this group of people at times skinny jeans theologians. And uh, this is, is, at this moment, quite a critique for me, is that if skinny jeans theology has reduced Christianity to doing good in the world, then it is no longer Christianity, it's just doing good, because anybody can do good. Mm -hmm. And when Christian theology... Is used to do good, the kind of good that we do it transcends the good that others are doing. It becomes redemptive, it becomes a relationship with God through Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit to remake people, the grace of God to transform us. All these things come into view, and so uh, I, I'm concerned. I think Wolf is right about a crisis. I think the way forward is for us to get on our knees and to begin to pray and to begin to commit ourselves to being people who learn theology the way Jesus and the theologians of the Bible taught us to do theology.
0: Well, we want to thank you today for joining us, and we hope this has been helpful in thinking through what does it mean to do theology in your context, and I think the mere fact that you'd be listening to a podcast with us talk about this indicates that that you are interested and are on the right track of doing that. So um, hope you have a great day today. Probably best thing to do would be go read a book now.